This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Hi there, my name is Daniel Libet. And I'm Eben Novi Williams, and this is the What's Happening in College Sports, sports business podcast, The Sportacast. Daniel, Scott is traveling today, gives us free reign to talk about whatever we want. I thought we'd do a tight 30 minutes on the youth hockey circuit in the Northeast. How does that sound to you? I mean, as long as I'm filling the position of Scott, I feel like I should really <laughs> lord over you as executive editor. <laughs> we, we kid everybody uh, who's listening. We will not be doing uh, hockey stuff. We are talking instead about college sports. And Daniel, I'm going to give a uh, theory to you, and I want you to give me, just to start this off, whether you think this is accurate or not. I'll, I'll pose a theorem. I believe that right now we are in the middle of the most, uh, the, the biggest period of college sports upheaval we've had in the past four or five decades. Uh, do you think that that is true or do you think that that is false? I think it's absolutely true. And in some ways, it's the most consequential upheaval in college sport history, because before the last five, five decades, you know, we weren't talking about college sports as a meaningful enterprise and as a thing that has captured all of society like it has today. So it's the biggest upheaval in college sports history. And it certainly wasn't a billion dollar industry uh, as of three decades ago, right? That The, the commercialization right. of college sports is a relatively new thing as well, which makes, I think, what's happening right now so incredibly fascinating to look at because uh, uh, there's so much happening and I, we can rattle off a few of these things. We're going to talk about all of them. Mark Emmert last week announcing that he was stepping down after almost 12 years. There's NIL, there's collectives, there's antitrust lawsuits, there's transfer porter shenanigans. There are uh, coaches in college basketball and football being paid more than ever. There's a new state law in California that you've written about, about revenue sharing. There's talk of collective bargaining, athletes getting paid. There's just so much happening right now. I get personally, and I'm curious because you, of all the people on our staff, I think maybe you cover this stuff day in, day out more than than any of us. How do you focus on or figure out what to focus on right now? I, I'm getting whiplash just rattling off the list of things, let alone diving into any single one of them. Mm, it's a great question. And it's sort of the whole reason why I started writing about college sports was because I felt like the way in which it was being covered by most outlets and by most reporters was wrong, that they were not focusing on the right things. This is a very easy beat, even for serious journalists to get caught by the shiny object. Mm. And I think we're seeing that right now, even as we're talking about reform, there's the right way to cover the upheaval. And, and maybe there's the way that seems distracted, at least by my lights. But 
I look at this as covering a cataclysm, you know, and so every day I approach it that way in terms of the stories I find interesting and what I don't and, and what seems to be su- sort of superficial or or incidental. And so I'm looking down the field, to use the terrible pun, um, at where does this go and what is the next challenge? What's the next tension point that's not being necessarily appreciated by the zeitgeist at the moment? Um, so, you know, let's take the thing that you love writing about the most, which is NIL. <laughs> and of course I tease. Yeah. Um, you know, this is the, this is the entertainment of the day. I mean, now we're seeing NIL, which was really, um, initially a product of just reform, uh, discussion of just reform and covered by just a few journalists who are really outside the mainstream of college sports reporters. Now this is just, you know, in the firmament as, part of the entertainment. Who's getting what? What's the new NIL collective? How much are they paying? This is becoming recruiting of 2022. You know, this is the scout.com stuff now. I'll, I'll give you the latest uh, NIL headline, at least the one that I was reading this morning. Jordan Addison, uh, a, a very talented wide receiver at the University of Pittsburgh, apparently seems to be on the verge of transferring to USC. Uh, the, the reporting out there says that he's offered maybe more than $3 million from a collective a group of boosters associated with USC uh, to, to transfer there. Uh, that's more money in, in, in next year's earnings than the uh, Pittsburgh Steelers second round wide receiver, uh, George Pickens, who was just drafted in the draft more than he's going to make next year. If those numbers are accurate, it's roughly what Kenny Pickett, the, the Steelers first round draft pick 20th overall is going to be paid next year. I'm fascinated by the way in which these stories get covered, Daniel, to your point, because there are some people out there saying, wow, this is NIL run amok. And then there are some people out there that are saying, oh, this is uh, this is great. Athletes are now getting paid in an open market. And then there are some people out there that are saying, hold on, this is not an open market. This is just a stepping stone towards what could eventually be an open market. What are your feelings when you read? It seems like every day or, or twice a day now, a new seven-figure sum attached to some sort of NIL deal for a very talented football or basketball player. Well, firstly, and I'm not the only person to note this, this is not NIL. I mean, we moved past NIL the day NIL went into effect, yeah. you know, almost to the day NIL went into like effect. Like a Trojan horse of some sort, right? And that's exactly right. Yeah. And so part of it is, is, you know, it's the fight over terminology. And I think the, the status quo, which previously was anti-NIL back when that was feasible to not have any NIL, um, is trying to hold the line and trying to just at least conceptually present the possibility that this can end, this being athlete economic opportunities can end with NIL and that this can balance on the fulcrum. College sports can work. It can be fair to college athletes. The NCAA and the member institutions are not going to continue to take um, all the guff they're taking in any number of different ways as long as there's NIL and it can just stop there. And what's very clear is that was a fantasy or, you know, or disingenuous or whatever, fill in the blank word. That's not going to happen. This doesn't end with NIL. This clearly ends with athletes getting paid by the people who really pursue the most value in them, which is the institutions or the boosters or the fans who want athletes to go to certain schools just because that was their alma mater. And, and this notion that, you know, the real value or a commensurate value would be, you know, the kinds of promotional deals that they can do, that they have such value to these companies to advertise and that's sufficient. 
is insane. And it was always insane. And, you know, there was a lot of, I would say, fairly well-adjusted NCAA skeptics um, who, you know, come last summer, July 1 of last summer when NIL went into effect, you know, still bought this idea that that was sufficient. Like, Mm -hmm. okay, this can work, or at least (laughs) this will work for five years or 10 years. And nothing of recent history has indicated that the ball is moving that slowly. And, you know, even uh, Ross Dallinger in Sports Illustrated um, interviewed, uh, what was it, Greg Sankey uh, this past this past week or last week, um, and who was, uh, no, it wasn't Greg Sankey, it was uh, Notre Jack Dame's Swarbrick, athletic believe, right, Exactly, yeah. Jack Swarbrick, um, who said, you know, I, I think, you know, I, we can see a sort of pay-to-play model emerging by the 2030s. I was like, 2030s? Like, that's, <laughs> that's insane. That's going to happen more likely in a year than it's going to happen in eight years. Um, but again, this is sort of, this is just the hope being expressed upon a runaway train that it just stops of its own volition. And it's, it's not going to stop. There's no indication that it will. One of the things I find so interesting about all of that is that these payments have been happening, uh, for decades, right? The, the idea that, oh, a a very talented football player is going to be paid on the side and maybe get a car to go play at USC. We, we've heard that. We've seen that movie before, right? This is a lot of this is stuff that was just happening uh, under the table in, you know, cash transactions and, and, and bag men and brown paper bags. This is, I think you and I would probably agree, certainly a more legitimate way of doing this. The, these NIL collectives kind of using the, 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 the broad cover of NIL to make these transactions. But, but, I, I, but, yes, but. It's still the same college sports way of doing I, this. I 100% agree with you. And and the obvious end result here is some kind of a collectively bargained something, right? Where athletes actually do have rights to make <laughs> these negotiations and they're they're happening fully above board, et cetera. And, and it's interesting, actually, to me to hear you say that you think that that is uh, potentially right around the corner in, in, in even just the next couple of years. I, I agree. It just feels like the safe bet to make. The yeah. safe bet to make now, given everything that's happened and, you know, since Alston's case, you know, went to the Supreme Court was that it's all moving quicker than you would have anticipated, you know, a year ago. And we're having conversations. We were having conversations and doing reporting on stories that, you know, we didn't think many didn't think were even on the horizon anytime soon. Mm-hmm. But anytime soon is all it seems to now be sooner than later in college sports. And so, you know, I'm operating on that assumption. And and now the question is, okay, so let's assume we get to a place where college athletes can get paid by schools, get paid by boosters without the construct of a, of NIL yeah. um, behind it. Um, then what? You know, that, that to me is sort of the, the, the place. We can now really grapple with that and not be um, going to, charting too far into the future. Um, I, I think that is now a dynamic that is going to be in play within the next couple of years. And I don't think it, I don't think that alone solves college sports problem either. You know, there are a huge group of athlete advocates who, because they've advocated for athlete pay for so long, have, have, have done so presenting it as a sort of panacea for college sports. If athletes can get paid, then the ideal of college sports is realized, but we're still in this very strange dynamic between what has become professionalized sports and when we're talking about power five football and and big time men's basketball and now even a big time women's basketball um, and higher education. I mean, this is like a strange marriage and, and there's no guarantee that this works out in the end. And so to, to go back to the, the original question you asked me, 
I'm looking at this as something that very likely just doesn't fit. And, mm-hmm. you know, and I think it's worth, you know, those of us who are chronicling this, uh, this whole enterprise to see where are the, where are the potential potholes in the future. And, um, cause there's many, and, and a lot of them aren't even being discussed today. What, if you can name me a couple that, that you see on the horizon. I think the paradox here is athletes getting paid. The, 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 the group that has been longest deprived from financially benefiting from this multi-billion dollar industry are the, are the same um, individuals who are going to bring new kinds of attention and scrutiny to the whole enterprise. I mean, mm-hmm. I think this is what's going to make people question. Um, not that this should have been the starting point of these sorts of questions, but this is what's going to make fans question, why are they getting paid? Why is this a not-for-profit? Um, you know, why are schools involved? You know, and, and, they're gonna be, and fans are going to be doing this from a fan's perspective. All of a sudden, you know, you know, your team's not doing well, and you, but you know that the quarterback is earning this much money. You know, that's going to that's gonna change your perception of this whole thing that you've been rooting somewhat blindly for for so many years. So I, I think it's just going to be new kinds of scrutiny applied to this by more people than just us, let's say, and, and, our, and our cohorts. Every time we publish valuations, it just happened to about a month ago when we did our most recent baseball valuations, fans of teams that have not been performing well, but have wealthy owners or have high valuations always jump on those. This year it was the Cubs. They were, you know, the Cubs are the fourth most valuable team in Major League Baseball. Why aren't the Ricketts spending like that? I think you're right. I think in, in, in a world in which kind of the professional aspects of college sports become an assumed part of and an accepted part of that whole tapestry that you get people like fans of, let's say, University of Texas, right? A team that prides itself as being one of the best in the country, even though football-wise it hasn't been for a very long time. Yeah, I think then then some of those same pressures that you see in professional sports, as you're saying, just start to apply to college sports as well. And then we'll see things, and I, this was sort of in microcosm already experienced, you, you referenced at the top of the show, the uh, this bill that's being um, proposed in the California State Senate to share revenue Mm-hmm. To almost compel the sharing of revenue for revenue sports at California universities and the athletes who participate in them, um, you you see in this bill the tension between some of the major challenges um, that college sports faces. One, the revenue sharing or the revenue distribution, and two, Title Nine and all these other mm-hmm. sports that you know have many more athletes in some who participate in them, but are not the ones that garner the attention and and generate the revenue. So let's take this California bill, which has now passed two committees. Explain There's exactly, more, you, you said revenue sharing, but explain to people who might not be aware of it what exactly it's, it says. Yeah, well, so just to take it a step back further, it's just a reminder that California was the state that was the first domino uh, that launched the, the nationwide uh, NIL reform movement that really was a product of state legislation. Um, so that was a couple of years ago. Now there's a new bill in California that started out as both a Title IX enforcement and revenue share bill. It was trying to basically do everything um, at once, which is to make sure schools complied with Title IX and gave women as many opportunities as men, um, and at the same time um, require schools to to basically split revenue uh, with the athletes and the sports who are generating the most revenue. That was a, that's a sticky point right there because there's a lot of debate on exactly how to calculate revenue and what does it mean for an individual team to produce revenue. 
Um, but immediately, so this, this bill went first to the education committee in the state Senate, um, before it had even been heard by that committee, the title IX component got immediately junked it. So it just became a straight revenue share bill because, you know, you know, which, which is again, you know, maybe a, a, an example of how hard it is to, to, um, get your arms around all of these different challenges at once or, or, you know, at all. Um, and then the bill passed the, the education committee. It went to the judiciary committee. I think it passed that it, it's now going to the appropriations committee. If it passes that it then heads to the floor and then that could get really interesting. I mean, I think the proponents of this bill are thinking we're not necessarily going to get it through in the first shot. Um, but you, you know, the NIL bill was a surprise. Nancy Skinner's NIL bill sailed through the California State Senate and all the way onto Governor Gavin Newsom's desk and, and was signed, and much to the shock of the nation and certainly to the NCAA. So I, I wouldn't bet against this one, this one having similar success. Um, it already is kind of on the glide path. Uh, but yeah, to that point, you know, what about the, what about women? What about these, these Olympic sports? Um, you know, these, this is where where some real tension points emerge right away, um, and and you know I think we're we're going to be dealing with them in the next academic year. They're they're coming to a head. To to keep the the the, the comparison there between the, NI, the California NIL bill and this one, that that California NIL bill, as you said, was a surprise. It didn't get much attention at the start. I think a lot of people kind of dismissed it as kind of pie in the sky, and then there was a rush up until. July 1st of last year, where there was all these states who didn't have them and, and colleges in those states lobbying to get NIL books on the, on the books, bills on the books, because they thought it was going to be a competitive advantage to have them. Right. And then July 1st happens. And very quickly, a lot of those same people realize that, oh, it's a competitive disadvantage to have an NIL bill. And then you see in a lot of states like Alabama, a rush afterwards to amend or to lighten and weaken the language inside the NIL bill that they kind of rush forward because they thought it was going to give them a competitive advantage at the jump. So it, it, it's always interesting to look at these bills in kind of a snapshot in time, because just like NIL, there was a moment where this was a crazy idea. There was a moment where every state needed one. And now we're in a moment where states don't, don't seem to want to have them because of how restrictive they are. And that excellent point. I'm going to scoop a story I want to write on this podcast, perhaps. But uh -oh. I, I was having a conversation with Ramogi Huma, the person who leads the National College Players Association, the advocacy group that seems to really have been leading the way on on a lot of these issues uh, about sort of the irony that, you know, here he was, he dedicated so much of his last decade to fighting for NIL. And now he's fighting against NIL. <laughs> I mean, this is this is how quickly things get turned on their head. And by fighting against NIL, I mean that he's fighting against for NIL to be considered sufficient. You know, and, yeah. and, and now all these all these people who, um, you know, were part of the NCAA or, or presidents or, or um, athletic directors who so vociferously opposed NIL are the ones to bear hug it and say, this is so great. We don't need anything else. Uh, so, you know, this is, again, it's uphe upheaval creates all kinds of weird paradoxes. Let's talk, Daniel, about the NCAA. I teased at the beginning some, some pretty surprising news, or, or depending on who you are, surprising. Mark Emmert announced uh, last week that he would not see through the end of his contract. He is stepping down uh, either sooner than or no later than uh, the middle of next year. He's been leading the NCAA for, for, for almost 12 years. I think it's kind of hard to argue that he's done a great job. We're talking about a lot of a lot of changes in college sports that the NCAA and its members and certainly the governing body itself in Indiana fought to uh, prevent 
from happening. Um, and you mentioned, I think you used the words runaway train earlier. I think that's maybe a great way to kind of describe where we are right now in college sports vis-a-vis the power that the NCAA has always had. What do you make of, of where the NCAA fits into whatever this future is you're envisioning now where athletes are paid by schools potentially, and maybe there's a big split between the richest schools that want to play in that sandbox and the ones that don't. What do we think of Mark Emmert's successor, his or her role being in the college sports landscape moving forward? Yeah, well, I mean, so he fulfilled a certain kind of role. Dan Wolken at USA Today wrote a column about this a couple of days ago in the wake of his his uh, departure, which was, you know, he he called him a pinata, and and that to me was always what Mark Emmert's job was to be. He in the was, Roger Goodell world, right? That's exactly right. That's yeah. exactly right. Um, me and our colleague Luke Cyphers wrote a column for our previous publication a couple of years ago, the title of which was "Mark Emmert Lives for Your Hate." Um, I, I always viewed that as his role, that he was a minister of propaganda more than he was a CEO. Um, that's not to exonerate him of being uh, the anti-reformist. Uh, certainly there was more he could have done, but oftentimes the NCAA is confused as the sole entity that is responsible for the way that college sports does or does not change. And Yes, I mean, if Mark Emmert just got got the uh, the wild hair to sort of start speaking about the need, both internally and externally, for the NCAA to make a big move prior to all of the big moves being forced upon it, um, that potentially could have been a difference. But he was hired for a reason. He is the ultimate creature of the status quo. I mean, you know, just everything about him, his background, the way he operated at the NCAA, his look. He just looked like the man, the company man. Um, and he behaved that way through and through. I mean, it was it was surprising and yet telling when he got right around the t- right around the time of NCAA and the Alston ruling, he got renewed. Here was this guy who was just being bashed left and right. Um, and at a moment where it seemed like the NCAA at least had to signal that it was going to be changing things. Um, and yet they then just renewed his contract for five years, which obviously never got fulfilled or it will not be fulfilled. Um, that's, that's really the story. The story is the NCAA has never made the big move to stop the, let's return back to our old metaphor, this runaway train. Mm. You know, it, it's, it's always tried to do things incrementally and never to the point and never really matching the need in recent years. Obviously this worked for the NCAA for decades you know, this is only a recent phenomenon where its approach is failing to really stifle the opposition and the movement to change. Um, you know, even even when we look back around the Ed O'Bannon lawsuit, which is now more than a decade old, you know, its response to that was very minimalist. And yet, and even in the end, it was forced to do very little um, after after the, uh, the O'Bannon lawsuit was filed. Um, it, this is a different game. It has one move left to make, and that is a move that's bold enough to, to, to basically negotiate with athletes um, for some sort of um, employment status, uh, some sort of revenue share, some sort of pay-to-play move that will, that will stop the lawsuits and that will stop the state-based legislation um, and will maybe give it its long-desired antitrust exemption so that it can't keep getting sued by you know, every white-shoe law firm in Washington, D.C. and New York. Um, 
So that's that's it. Now, does it have the the gumption to do that? And will its leader, uh, you know, reflect the kind of person that will will take that move? I don't know. Though I wouldn't count on it. Um, but that's what we're waiting to see. That's all. That's the only card it has left to play. Scott asked me this on the podcast last week, and I'll ask you, I assume you agree with me. I think you could make an argument that back in 2010, when Mark Emmer took this job, it was the most powerful position in college athletics. I feel very confident saying, at least right now, that it is not. That, that Greg Sankey, the commissioner of the SEC, Kevin Warren, the commissioner of the Big Ten, certainly are among at least those two and maybe others that are that are more powerful right now in college sports. I assume you don't see that changing anytime soon, that, that regardless of who takes over this job from Mark, um, that, that this is now a position that is pretty far down the totem pole just because, and, and we can get into some of this stuff, but it has been clear in Mark's final couple years that the NCAA is, is kind of giving up in some ways and a lot of the like big governance points that the, 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 the governing body for so long. And, and this is just, the, I say this a lot. It's the easiest way for me to say it. Wanted to treat Alabama and Alabama A&M under the same guidelines. And that was farcical for so long, but really became farcical in the past decade and has now finally at least admitted that they can't do that. Right. So there's a new constitution in January that gives individual divisions and probably conferences a lot of their own autonomy when it comes to rulemaking and rule enforcing that comes after the quote unquote creation of the power five five or six years ago by giving a little bit more autonomy to those conferences. NIL, another example where the NCAA kind of played around with some kind of national framework and then threw their hands up and essentially let states and individual schools dictate how they wanted that to go about. It just seems like the person who's inheriting this job from Mark is inheriting maybe outside of that Hail Mary that you're talking about, a governing body that is increasingly saying, you guys do what you want. Like we will, we'll do X and Y here. Maybe we'll sell media rights to the, the basketball tournaments moving forward, et cetera. But it seems as though on a lot of kind of the thorny issues that have become so controversial in college sports over the past few years, the NCAA's recent approach under Emmert has been, let's just kick this down to, to someone else to make a decision on what should be allowed and what wouldn't. Yeah. Well, that's exactly the way I see it. I guess you could say that this is going to be a very bad job to take now. Maybe it's a better job to, to be the person who succeeds the person who's about to take this job. <laughs> yeah. um, that said, you know, and even when you look at the authority of the conference commissioners, y- y- there's still a place for somebody to kind of work on, you know, conference to conference issues. Um, you know, I, this is not going to be like the five families um, to use a terrible, but maybe apt analogy. Uh, you know, there, there's going to be still a role for somebody to be the centralized authority on some of these big questions, reconciling Title IX and reconciling athlete compensation and, and revenue sport um, decisions. And, and so th- there's a place for an NCAA-like uh, character. But yeah, I would just imagine, and I, I've sort of caught wind of this, is just a depressing place to work at now. I mean, this is not the same NCAA as it was whatever, 20 months ago. Um, and, you know, it wasn't just Mark Emmert who recently left. Donald Remy left. That's a huge departure from somebody who was a consequential decision maker. This was a chief legal officer who's now a deputy uh, secretary in the VA under under the Biden administration. Um, you know, and I, I could, you know, th- there's always a lot of movement in and out of the NCAA at the mid to lower levels because people jump back and forth between the schools and 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 the association. Um, but in the higher reaches, we, we are seeing a, a turnover and and it just feels like not a great place to work. That said, and we're going to see this on 
the NCAA's next tax return. The job pays probably tremendously well. Maybe <laughs> the per- next, maybe Mark Emmert's successor is not going to make quite mu- as much as he's going to, as he's making, but he's going to make millions or she's going to make millions. Um, and, and that alone will make it an attractive job to a number of people. And I guess, you know, depending on who you are and where you're coming from, you know, being the person to kind of pick the NCAA up when it's, when it's in decline or when it's down or, you know, it w- could be an interesting role for somebody to play. But, you know, if we see, you know, kind of fill in the blank university president, fill in the blank, you know, powerful athletic director, take this job. If Condi Rice is discussed for this role, I mean, then then it's just status quo and and you can just see this this uh, this ship continue to just go go down the river the wrong way. I'd love to be a fly on the wall for whatever the early phase of these job interviews sound like, because, again, you just don't I assume whoever is interviewing for this job just doesn't know how how involved the NCAA is going to be in in a lot of these things moving forward. Right. There's a way in which this job is like essentially the, the gatekeeper for division two and division three athletics in five years. It wouldn't shock me if the, the top tier essentially just breaks away from all of the things that the NCAA is doing and, or maybe that they really believe that Hail Mary works. We changed athlete compensation and suddenly the NCAA is back in kind of a position of, of great strength in, in, in all, you know, across all the top and lower divisions. It just seems like there's just so much unknown about what this job is for the person who takes it. Um, Daniel, we're running out of time here, but I want to end by asking you this because someone sent it to me and I thought it was interesting. Uh, an old Sports Illustrated cover. Uh, the, the, the headline was the student athlete hoax. And this is the lead story. Athletics are now an abomination to the ideals of higher education. The victims are the student athletes. The culprits are the system and those who run it. This is from May 19th, 1980. So 42 years ago, how do we avoid kind of falling into the trap of thinking that this is a, a great moment and then ending up kind of with the status quo, which seems like it probably happened back in May 19th, 1980. How do we avoid kind of falling into those traps of making a big deal about what's broken about college sports and then kind of failing to fix it in that moment? Just, we should all just frame that uh, copy of SI and, and <laughs> plaster it to our walls. Yeah. I mean, uh, Part of this is to just get outside of the entertainment coverage of college sports and and to stop looking at this as sports reporters or sports fans and looking at this. This is a this is a business story. This is a political story. This is a social story. Civil rights story. This is a civil rights story, uh, an economic rights story. Um, you know, it's college sports. We, we often say it's a multi-billion dollar business. I think I write that in every story I write about the NCAA. Um, but it's also a lot of other things. It takes up a lot of other bandwidth. Uh, you know, this rides on the top of our of our largest institutions of higher learning. It it consumes our politicians, um, many of our civic leaders, a large part of our businesses. Um, so it's to have that perspective and to let it carry through. There is going to be, I mean, again, you know, it, NIL is the uh, is the is the bauble of the moment. Um, there's going to be more of those that we can kind of lose ourselves in. Um, I think, you know, you and I, for either just our natural predilections or, or, or sort of how we see this, are not so interested in the, in the minutia of that. Um, and, and, and to me, that's, that's, you know, speaking as a, as a reporter of this, that's the, that's the ticket. You know, that's the eye on the prize. It's like, this is bigger than sports. This is not a sports story. And it hasn't been for, for quite a few number of years. 
There it is. Daniel, this was fun. We'll have you back at some point soon. He is Daniel Libet on Twitter at Daniel Libet. Nice and easy. I am Eben Novi Williams on Twitter at Novi underscore Williams. The show is produced by Matt Whitehurst. Shout out to Matt and shout out to Cora Veltman, our digital media editor, who wants you to know that the show can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.